Good morning, church. Happy August. It's uh, so good to be with you. I've had the privilege of uh, experiencing quite a disruptive summer where I've got to preach and teach um, around the country some and travel a little bit, which has been a tremendous blessing. But there's nothing like being home um, with the saints uh, of the Austin Stone. You can feel the back to school energy in the air. Um, there's hope and fear and relief and denial um, and a fair amount of grief, all of those emotions that we're going through as we head into another school year. Here at West, um, where I'm preaching today, we're being streamed to some other locations, but here at West we have a family worship Sunday, and so I want to say a word to the grade school kids in the room um, quickly. These are some of my favorite Sundays, all right? And so you guys are not a nuisance in here this morning. You guys are not just trying to endure the next uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, Kids really matter in the kingdom of God, and I believe that God can and will teach you something this morning. Um, Whenever Jesus was teaching and religious folk around him would try to push kids away, he had said, no, 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 and he brought them closer. And so I want you guys to lean in today. I think that the Spirit of God can teach you from the Word. I think you can learn maybe just one or two things from the Word today, which makes you better than most of the adults in the room, all right? Because they're gonna, they've learned through life how to pretend like they're paying attention, but they're also struggling, all right? And so if you're struggling to stay awake, if you're struggling to pay attention, it's the same for them. They're just better at pretending, all right? And so uh, you can lean out and lean in, um, but ask God to teach you maybe one or two things today. I'll say this to you kids. You aren't just the future of the church. You are the church, Right? You're an invaluable part of our church, and so your faith matters. Your walk with Jesus Christ matters, and it's wonderful to have you in the room with us today. It's okay to get a little distracted and bored. It happens to us all, even to me um, up here, and I wrote this thing, right? Um, and there's sections of it where I'm like, yeah, this is too long. Um, and so it's okay. Just ask the Lord to help you to, to catch some truth from his scripture today. We're continuing today in our summer in the Psalms, and so we'll be in Psalm 2 Today, we've had local elders at all of our congregations teaching on the Psalms across the summer. It's been wonderfully helpful. It's been a highlight of mine on Monday to then go back and listen to the different congregations and the various local elders that we've had bring the word. What a joy to hear from a variety of voices across our church. It's so good for our soul. Uh, It's good for the pulpit here, but it's also good for those who receive from the pulpit. It's just a reminder, friends, because some of you might be new, you're not really sure how we do things from the pulpit. It's just a reminder that we refuse, we refuse to build the pulpit ministry of our church off of a single gift mix and off of a single personality. We want to steward the varied gifts that the Lord has given us, and part of that faithful stewardship is making sure that our people get a varied and healthy diet from from a number of voices, right? I know it irritates some of you. I get emails and I talk to you guys and I get it. You're like, I don't know who will be preaching on any given Sunday. And I say, yes and amen. Um, Praise the Lord. Because if one fool preaches all the time and then he collapses in a heap, what do you do? right? Uh, When you're exposed to his rebellion, what do you do with the church? Uh, When you don't really know who it's going to be, then you just go again next Sunday, right? And if one of us falls down, the rest pick up the slack. Praise the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. And so we're trying to future-proof our church. Uh, We've seen way too many times what it looks like when we build churches off uh, of and around individual personalities. Then what happens when those personalities are no longer qualified um, to, to, to hold that office? 
And so praise God for the way that he has blessed us with the diversity of faithful gifts, Seth. I'm very thankful. All right. Here's what's going to happen from the pulpit over the next few months. We're going to keep the Psalms train running for the next two weeks, right? So we'll be in the Psalm today. We'll be in the Psalm next week. Then we'll pause for a few weeks to spend some time examining our 2030 vision from the Scriptures. If you're like, why don't you guys teach from the Scriptures over that? We will um, in terms of what we think God has said to us and what we think the Lord might have for us over the next seven to 10 years. And then we'll jump back into Hebrews. Um, and part of what we did earlier this summer is we planned out the rest of uh, the book of Hebrews. And so uh, that will run us through for the most part until um, early in the summer in 2024. Um, and then we'll see what comes next after that. Today, we're going to be in a fantastic Psalm, Psalm 2. Now, I wouldn't say This is one of my favorite psalms, the brief that we gave to preachers this summer, which is, preach your favorite psalm. If you were to ask me to preach my favorite one, that honor would fall to um, 103 or perhaps 116 or maybe 121 um, or maybe 133, now that you mention it, right? There's a few that, that, that compete for this label. But I do love Psalm 2, and I think it's extremely pertinent. And as I've been before the Lord over the last few weeks, I think it's the, the, the one that he would have me shared, uh, share today. It's quoted a great deal in the New Testament. It's been used throughout church history to soothe God's anxious people when there have been circumstances that made it seem like the world was out of control. Ever feel like the world is out of control? Ever feel like perhaps we stand geopolitically or climatically or sociologically at the edge of chaos? That perhaps the future of our well-being and the future of our children lies in the hands of very unstable and very untrustworthy leaders? Have you ever felt like this? Uh, If not, it means that you don't watch the news. Um, And seriously, don't start, right? You're not missing anything. I will summarize it for you in one phrase. It isn't going particularly well. All right, and so this is, this is the theme that, that we feel, and it's not just us, it's not unique to this generation, it's felt across history and every generation an anxiety that perhaps the world is not being run as well as we would hope, and so we're not sure of our future place in it, we're not sure of the future flourishing of the people of God in the world, I feel that too and I understand it, right? This psalm then has been used across the ages to soothe some of that restlessness, some of that disquiet, some of that anxiety, some of that angst we feel around the fact that the world is not as it should be. Let's look, read it with me um, this morning. Verse one, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, 
Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear (laughs) and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. Father God, won't you help us? This feels abstract, distant, removed, covered in regal and royal, monarchical language from another culture, another time, another age. But I believe that you have something for our restless hearts today. Lord, won't you bring us an image of the king who is set on Zion's holy hill, the one who cannot be removed. And I pray that today in wisdom and in pursuit of blessing, we would bow the knee before him, that we would kiss him in reverence and awe. And that as a result, we would feel peace and certainty and faith in this room grow as we realize just how well established your king is on Zion's holy hill. Nothing can move him. I pray that we won't be moved this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, that song makes sense? It's a coronation psalm. It was used for the installation of a monarch in Israel, right? Did any of you watch the coronation of King Charles um, earlier in May? I mean, I know you did because I've seen you on social media pretending like uh, you you celebrate the freedom of our country from the monarchy, but secretly still desiring some of the pomp and ceremony and sandwiches and carriages and tea and, um, uh, you know, high ceremony sort of things. I was amazed, actually, to see how many people in the U.S. watched on to see King Charles coronated as king, right? We're, We're fascinated by the monarchy, this idea of it, even though we think it's not good for our nation, and I agree. Right? And I agree, we still want to look in, we still want to see what this looks like. And the coronation um, of King Charles was very similar to the coronation of the kings of Israel and what they would do. And part of what they would do is they would recite the psalm, Psalm 2. Acts 4 tells us David probably wrote it, right? That's not named as such in terms of its titling, but the apostles believe that David wrote the psalm and that as he was coronated as king, he, he got this prophetic vision of the kings that would follow him and then the king that would ultimately follow him. And so every time they instituted a new king, they coronated a new king in Israel, right? They would quote the psalm in the hope that one day God would set his holy one on Zion's hill and that he wouldn't be removed, right? But if you watched the coronation, God bless you, um, uh, I didn't watch much of it. It's one of the few things that's caused tension in my home with my in-laws. They think the monarchy is wonderful. I think they're not. Um, And uh, there's a slight departure there. And so I struggle to take seriously King Charles, right? Because I'm like, if I can beat a guy in an arm wrestle, I'm not that scared of him um, as a king. Um, And in fact, I think I could hospitalize him in an arm wrestle. um, And I'm not exactly a strong specimen, right? Uh, But as I looked at him, I was like, can he carry that crown? I don't think he can. Um, And so others had to come place it on his head and you watched his whole spine compress um, and they had to hold him up, right? And then they gave him a scepter, which is supposed to be a 
a rod of authority, but it looked like a crutch, right? And then they gave him an orb, which is supposed to be symbolic of the fact that he holds all wisdom, but he looked really confused, right? And dismayed uh, to be there. If you're a royalist, I'm sorry. Your king's wonderful. Long live the king. Um, It's amazing, right? But this is the exact kind of ceremony that would happen in Israel when you would take a man and then you would start to bestow upon them things that you really knew they would never fully be able to hold, right? They would hold a staff of authority, but you knew that all authority didn't rest with them and couldn't rest with them and shouldn't rest with them, right? They would hold an orb of wisdom, but you knew that they didn't know all things, that God alone knows all things. They would wear a crown of divine anointing, but you would know that they're just temporary, that they aren't the one that ultimately that the psalm speaks of, right? And so the ancients, when they would coronate a king, they would quote Psalm 2 and they would be saying something. They would be saying, long live this king, but this king isn't the king. And so when they coronated a current king, they were looking forward, right? They were looking forward to the one who would be seated on Zion's holy hill, who they knew would rule and reign in a way that no earthly king could. So let's walk through it. It's got four clear sections um, with four observations from it. um, And let's just walk through it and see what it says. Here's the first. Verse one. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast cast away their cords from us. Here's the first observation. It is human nature at least east of Eden, right? Under the curse, under, under the, the curse of sin, post the fall. It is part of who we are, collectively and individually. It is human nature to resist the kingship and lordship of God. It's, it's in our genetic coding to push back against that kind of ultimate authority. What was going on here in the context was that the surrounding nations wanted to rebel against the rule of the monarchy of Israel, right? They didn't like it. They saw Israel as an especially blessed people, and they didn't like that. And so they saw that God's kingdom was flourishing, and people wanted to be part of that flourishing. But with God's kingdom, when it flourished, came God's law. And no one wanted to follow God's law, (laughs) Because even back then, that felt like bondage. That felt outdated. That felt narrow-minded. That, that, that felt too tight, right? It felt like bonds and cords that the nations wanted to break in their enlightenment and in their new wisdom and in their liberation and in their progression of society. You see, friends, there's very little new about us. Do you know that? No one wants to be told how to live. <laughs> and it's been that way since the garden. Uh, Yes, there's rebellion in society today, but I don't actually think it's escalated than ever before. We just have different tools, right, to advance it into common thought more quickly. But this rebellious instinct is the exact one that's always been there. We see so much of this still today, of course. You see it on a global scale, right? We see it societally. We see it culturally. But we also see it personally. Globally, societally, culturally, we see the rulers of the world. Listen, and the ones who actually rule the world, who are what? The influences of culture. (laughs) The influence of culture have way more power in the world today than many of the politicians, right? And what do we see as the posture? Seeking to go against God and his teachings. 
seeking to push back against it, saying, no, no, that's outdated, that's bigoted, that's old-fashioned, that's Iron Age thinking. We can't have those kind of bonds. We want liberation, we want freedom, we want expression. And so what do we see? Just like the Psalm says, people raging against the Lord, raging against his anointed son, King Jesus. Now listen, before we get all on our high and mighty, right? And we get all on our high horse and say, that's why. I'm a diehard conservative, culturally, theologically, politically. Like, I'm with you, right? I'm with you. But this isn't just a conservative versus progressive issue, because conservatives do this as well, right? We rage against the Lord's anointed. Uh, The Lord's anointed is the one who taught us the Sermon on the Mount, which says that the way you go about things is as important as the things that you go about. (laughs) And yet we've rejected that in pursuit of power, and we've said, no, the end justifies the means. And in so doing, we rage against the Lord's anointed. People don't want to be told how to behave. People don't want to be told what to do. It's it's not uniquely to one subset of culture. We're all rebels in different ways to be sure. But we're all rebels. Why is that? Well, because the issue actually isn't just in culture. The issue is in us. This raging against the Lord and against his law and against his anointed, we experience this personally, don't we? Don't we? We still don't like being told what to do. <laughs> I don't. Do you like being told what to do? Deep down, most of us think of God's instruction to us as cords and bonds to restrain us. And we don't really want them. We think it would be freer without them. Just like the nations that raged against God's anointed, we do the same thing. We want all of the blessings of the kingdom all of the grace, all of the mercy, all of the love, all of the favor, but we don't want the instructions of the kingdom. We don't want the ethical manifesto of the kingdom because it feels like bondage. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that feels like a bond or a cord, especially when we go, who's my neighbor? And he says, think of the worst one. You go, God, it goes, that one. We're like, ugh. Feels like a bond or a cord. It feels like we'd be giving part of ourselves away. Live with purity, that's like really flabbergasting in the culture. Live with holiness, right? No, that feels like a bond. That feels too restrictive. Be generous. Well, how generous, Jesus? We'll give to everyone who asks of you. Come on, what? That feels like a bond or a cord. Maybe when I have more one day, maybe when I've got a little buffer, right? Then, then, then. Forgive as you have been forgiven? (laughs) No, thank you. Because that gives my power away. And in the bitterness that I currently feel, in the hurt that I currently feel that's led to that bitterness, that's the only power I feel like I can hold on to. That can't apply to me because I don't think God has in mind the level of hurt that I have endured, except yes, he does. He does. And he wants our freedom. I still rage against God like this every time I sin. And guess what? Even at 44, even after walking with Jesus for 37 years, right? I still sin alarmingly frequently. I I just do. It's amazing. But every time I'm making a trade, every time I'm saying to God, my way looks more free and more full of joy than your way. I am a better architect and manager of human flourishing than you are. (laughs) And so I'm going to pursue my my path 
And while I don't realize it in the moment, I'm raging against the Lord and against his anointed. Right? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he said this. It's amazing. Think about this. He said, to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ, the instruction of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke? <laughs> or do we wish to cast it from us? I must confess that often in my rebellious heart, I wish to cast even that lightest of yokes off of my shoulders in exchange for something that looks lighter, but that ends up being a burden way too heavy for me to carry. The burden of sin and its consequences. You know what's sad? I've never once regretted obeying God. And yet I still rage. <laughs> Friends, your rebellion is part of our life east of Eden. But it isn't insurmountable. We're called to fight back against it and to submit ourselves to God's authority, even and especially when our instinct is to rebel. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? Why indeed, Lord? Not just them, but me. Right? How does God respond to man's desire, including our own, to dethrone him? Look what it says, verse 4. <laughs> I love this verse so much. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Does God seem stressed <laughs> by our rebellion? <laughs> he doesn't. The Lord holds them in derision. He goes, oh, cute, look, another dictator. Sweet. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. That's furious, determined opposition. And terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How does God respond to rebellion? This is amazing. God's response is to send his son as king. <laughs> God's response is to send his son as savior. God's response is to send his son as the recipient of his wrath. And now listen, at first this can seem like a terrifying vision of God, right? Some of you go like, well, it's no laughing matter, sin, right? How can he be so uh, aloof or removed from it emotively? Well, he's not, right? How can he be so certain and how can he laugh at anarchy and attempted mutiny? Well, it tells us why. He laughs a laugh of joy and freedom because he has already done something to overcome that mutiny and to overcome that anarchy, right? What has he done? He has set his king on Zion's holy hill. Now, some of you might go like, well, there is no king currently reigning in eternal peace in Jerusalem. So what does this mean? <laughs> well, it means that when the time was right, he sent his son to that heavenly city, right? And what did they do to him there? Instead of installing him as king in the temple, 
They moved him to another hill outside of the city and they put him to death. But they didn't realize that even in that religious and rebellious raging, they would only actually be establishing and announcing the eternal kingship of Jesus over that land and over every land of the world. As they thudded the base of his cross into the soil of God's holy land, they didn't realize that they were setting the sun in Zion, in concrete, (laughs) in a way that would unseat all of the opposition against the Lord and against his anointed. Those centurions had no idea as they put a little label above his head that said, here hangs the king of the Jews, that they were fulfilling Psalm 2. God can laugh. Because he knew then and he knows now, he knew then that he was sending his son. He knows now that he sent his son. He knew then that nothing would defeat that son. He knows now that nothing can defeat that son, not even death. That's why God can laugh. Look at how Roger Ellsworth describes this. This is amazing. He says, hate all they want. Plan all they like. Fret and fuss all they wish. Men can never rid themselves of God. Hostility is futile. Why? God is sovereign. He sits in heaven. In other words, he transcends men. He is far superior. And how does this scene of raging hostility strike him? Is he stricken with terror? Does he fly into a panic? Does he call an emergency session of the heavenly cabinet? No, he just laughs. He scoffs at puny men as they parade briefly across the stage of history as they fume and fuss. But after laughing, God speaks. Yet I have set on my holy, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The Lord has already done the very thing his enemies most want to prevent. He has already made Christ king. So what then of his wrath? Because this text says here that he's going to speak to them in fury. And in wrath, that he laughs and then he tells them something. And in that saying, there is fury and wrath and opposition. Well, he doesn't pull that word back. But instead, he sent his son to die for the mutiny that seeks to unseat him from his eternal throne. His wrath and his fury is absorbed by his son. And he's willing to let it be. God is very certain in the work of Jesus Christ. Again, I'm going to let Spurgeon speak on the matter. One day when I'm big, I'll say stuff like this. Um, and I'm working on getting big. Um, but one day when I'm old and wise, if the Lord gives me days, I'll be able to say stuff like this. Look at what, look at what Spurgeon said. He said, is not that a grand exclamation? He has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. While they are proposing, he has disposed the matter. Jehovah's will is done and man's will frets and raves in vain. He's going all streets here, it's amazing. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. Uh, That needs to go on a coffee mug, that's incredible. Look back through all the ages of infidelity. Hearken to the high and hard things which men have spoken against the most high. Listen to the rolling thunder of earth's volume against the majesty of heaven and then think that God is saying all the while yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion God's word in the face of our rebellion is spoken and what does he say look 
Look at the king that I have set on Zion's holy hill. You can see him on the hill on that cross. Set and established with a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. We rebel against God. God sets his son as the recipient of his wrath in our place. Friends, listen. When you are distressed by the rebellion of the world, look to Zion's holy hill. When you are defeated by the rebellion of your own heart, look to Zion's holy hill. On that hill stands a rugged cross and on it the king of the world was set and established. I was praying for you guys this morning. Um, And I was saying, Lord, another sermon. This is the tension that preachers feel, right? Just more content. This is what we need. And I felt like the Spirit said, people are tired, right? And I was like, well, what are we tired of? Well, we're tired of things outside of our control, the world that seems in chaos and confusion. Okay, in that fatigue, look. (laughs) And remember the certainty of what Christ has done. Remember the certainty of his power. But we aren't just tired of the world, we're tired of ourselves. (laughs) We're tired of our own rebellion, of our own ability to do the things that we know we ought not to do and to fail to do the things that we ought to do. We're tired of that. Some of you come in here tired of yourself. What's the response? Look. (laughs) Look to Zion's holy hill and remember there that Christ loves you. And that he defeated even your rebellion once and for all and is currently standing on your behalf as your advocate and he is firm and established and nothing can can move him. Even though you can be easily moved, he cannot be moved. He cannot be moved. What a thought. Okay. How do we know that he cannot be moved? How how can we be secure in that king? Verse 7. He says, the, the language changes here, right? It goes to first person. So now it's this king, this prophetic king that they've been looking forward to. Now he speaks. And he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Right? Third observation is this. We can have confidence because God's king is set And God's king is established and nothing can move him. The voice goes from third person to first. The speaker switches to the king, speaking of what he has been given and speaking of the security and the power that he has. But friends, this is no ordinary king. This is a king with a divine origin and a divine inheritance. New Testament writers quote Psalm 2 quite frequently. One of the best ways we can understand writings in the Old Testament is to see how they're used in the New Testament to let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? It's a a wonderful hermeneutic technique. And they quote Psalm 2 quite frequently. And often what they're linking it to is the divinity of the Messiah. They're linking it to the fact that Christ is who he says he is. And so they say this part of the psalm ultimately is Christ speaking his own identity over the world. We see it a lot in Hebrews. Um, We see it a lot when the apostles preach. You can go home and read the, the back end of Acts 2. It happens in Acts 4 again. It happens in Acts 13 again. And they all marvel at the mystery of Christ's divinity revealed in Psalm 2. What are they saying? They're saying he's the secure son. He's eternally begotten. That that means his identity is secure. God the Father is not going to toss him aside at some point. He's going to keep him as the son who represents us. He has the nations as a heritage. 
He has the ends of the earth as a possession. And, and it says that compared to him, they are as fragile and impermanent as a piece of pottery. Now listen, sometimes the metaphors get lost on us. Here's what they would do in the coronation, right? And so they'd give the king his crown, that's his anointing. They'd give him the orb, that's the sign of his wisdom. And then they would give him his staff, right? They would give him this like rod of iron that he would hold here, which is his hand of authority. And then some servants would come in and they would bring in pieces of baked pottery and they would lay them at his feet. And on the pottery would be written the names of all of the kingdom's enemies, and so they'd be writing the names of surrounding nations, right? Philistia, they'd put them on there. Babylon, oh, gross, right? Assyria, these guys are baddies. And so they'd put them there. And in a very symbolic, moving gesture, the king would take his iron scepter and he would dash the pieces of pottery into and smash them into pieces on the floor. And everyone would cheer, right? This is what's going to happen to the enemies of God's people. This, we are told is the image that is given to us in terms of Christ, in terms of the world rebelling against him. They're as intimidating to Jesus Christ as a piece of pottery is to an iron staff in the king's hand. Now again, not to overplay it, we struggle to imagine this because I don't think King Charles could break the pottery, right? And so people would bring it to him and he'd be like, Ugh. all right, like Mr. Burns in The, in the Simpsons, right? Um, and so someone would have to break it on his behalf, um, which is part of the, the, the cool part of being a king. You're like, break this pottery. And they do it, right? Um, which is an amazing thing. But what an image of our Lord. Friends, if that's our king, what are we so afraid of? This gives me great comfort because it speaks of the certainty of what Christ has and who Christ is and what Christ is doing and what he is doing in the world. It right sizes my image of Jesus in terms of his power and authority. And I need to remember that, right? Because then that helps me to right size the obstacles that I see in front of me. When I have a small Jesus, then obstacles seem massive. When I right-size his lordship, then those obstacles, though they are, remain true and real, they get right-sized in his shadow, right? And they are no longer objects that can take us out. Hey, I have no idea what the new school year holds for any of us. I'm pretty sure that some of it personally, societally, is going to be difficult, but I have the sure and steady promise that Jesus has the nations and that the earth is his possession. So he has whatever this world might throw at us in hand. Therefore, do not be afraid. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, I can't believe I have to say that. In his devotion on this psalm, he calls Christians to boldness when it looks like their world is out of control. Look what Dr. Keller said. He said, to be intimidated by the world, oof, is as spiritually fatal as being overly attracted to it. Some of you are just operating out of fear. And part of the reason for that is you have, you've declawed the lion of Judah. <laughs> Your Jesus is Scandinavian and non-offensive and has flowing lovely blonde locks, right? And walks around with pithy sayings like a little holy fortune cookie dispenser. And he's king of the world. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. 
And it's oft quoted in pulpits, this scene especially, and that grieves me a little bit because it felt like my thing. But um, <laughs> Lucy's really scared in the, in the story about meeting Aslan, the mighty lion, right? This icon of Jesus. And so she asks Mr. Beaver, talking beaver, um, who, uh, who comes along and is going to lead them to Aslan. She's like, what is he like? And then she asks this question. She says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver's outraged. He says, safe? Of course he's not safe. <laughs> But he's the king, and he's good. He's good. You don't want a safe Jesus. You want a good one (laughs) who has the nations as his inheritance, who has a rod of iron and shattered pottery at his feet. (laughs) That's who you want. You might say, how can you say that Jesus does that? Go read Revelation 19 when you get home. Go read the last verses of Revelation 2. Both of those give us an image of Christ with a scepter and broken pottery at his feet. Psalm 2 retold. Verse 10, all right? Now therefore, (laughs) O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Last observation is this. Wisdom and blessing lies in submission to the king. A life where we're submitted to him is the life of true blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in the certainty of the finished work of this king and so therefore are shielded against the wrath that has been spoken over him so it doesn't need to be spoken over us. There's four instructions given to those who would set themselves in opposition to the Lordship of Christ. Now listen, this is spoken to kings, but remember we said kings aren't the only ones who rebel. (laughs) So it's spoken to us too. But I do think, um, I do think that we really need to be praying for those in power, those who would set themselves as the kings of the world, because here's a charge given first to them, right? And then to us. Uh, There's such clear instruction. Firstly, it says, be wise, and be warned. Think about it, it says. If that's who Christ really is, really think about your posture. <laughs> really think about what you think about him, is the instruction. Secondly, serve the Lord with fear. Right size who he is, and then devote your life to him. Thirdly, rejoice with trembling. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Jesus is so magnificent, so powerful, that what should come out of you is some trembling and much rejoicing. <laughs> because you're not the God of the world, but you know the one who is. And so you're the freest of all people. And then lastly, kiss the sun as a sign of worship and submission. Again, this is ancient ritual. This is bowing your knee before the king and kissing his ring from which he can pronounce any heavenly edict, right, that has authority over you and over all other people. The psalmist says, this is the path to true blessing. Listen, friends. The path to happiness isn't self-determination. The path to true happiness is submission to the correct authority. (laughs) And that authority is our King Jesus. All right, let me wrap this up. This text was famously preached and recited by the early church. You know that? They had just begun to experience major persecution and, and this faith thing that they were living out, this, this acknowledgement that Christ was in fact the king that they'd been waiting for, it was starting to become costly. Here's how they respond in Acts 4 to a culture that was unraveling, 
right, to actual opposition, not to getting shadow banned on Twitter or, you know, I'm not sure as many people saw my Facebook post as I, as I think because Zuckerberg's out there um, as the Antichrist, right? Now, I'm not saying all of those things aren't true. They could possibly be, right? But these people were being thrown in prison, beaten, stoned to death, right? Really starting to be challenged for their faith in Jesus Christ. And when the, when the leaders are arrested, when the world seems to be going to, to chaos, Does it diminish their certainty in the king set on Zion's holy hill? Or does it actually increase their certainty in the king set on Zion's holy hill? Look what it says, verse 23 of Acts 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, look at how they address him. They don't go, Lord, it seems out of control. What the heck are you doing? What do they say? Sovereign Lord. <laughs> it doesn't diminish their, their understanding of his sovereignty. It increases it. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. Look at what they believe about scripture. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They, they, they quote Psalm 2. They say, this is exactly what you predicted would happen. And so praise the Lord. Verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do... <laughs> To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even these great difficulties, they don't say, well, that was out of your control. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Right size the threats, Lord. In, in light of who Christ is, right size the threats and make us bold. And then you do what you, only you can do. Look what they pray. While you stretch out your hand to heal, they still believe you can do that even though they're being thrown in, in prison. And, and, and signs and wonders are performed uh, through the name of your holy servant Jesus, even though that name is being belittled and besmirched in their culture. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. <laughs> and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Our dear friends, I know some of you are tired. What if we stopped raging against the Lord and his anointed son for just a bit? What are some of the ways that you're currently shaking your fist at God where you should be kissing the son in submission? How many of us, like the early church, need boldness to believe in the establishment of Christ and his inheritance of the nations. What if we trusted this psalm like the early church did? Would the Holy Spirit not once again shake this place and empower us as his people for faithful living? Don't be afraid. Look to Zion's holy hill. The Lord is laughing <laughs> because he's secured us and his son can't be shaken. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us somehow by your Holy Spirit to believe it. Um, I acknowledge that it's hard in the midst of the cut and thrust of life and its obstacles and our own rebellions and our own fatigue.
to actually take something which feels abstract and distant and to then apply it in our lives in a way that gives us anchors and footholds. But I pray that we do it today. I pray that we take heed the warning in the psalm, that we would be wise, that we would consider the certainty of Christ's kingship. I pray that we would bow the knee and I pray that in reverence and awe, we would take his hand and we would kiss that powerful signet ring, the one in which the eternal covenant of the world is established and held. I pray this morning that we would look around his feet (laughs) and see the shards of broken pottery, not of broken lives, but of broken rebellion against him. And I pray that in that brokenness, we would see that, oh my goodness, he didn't strike me. He didn't strike me. (laughs) And I pray that as we look at him as he really is, ruling, established, inheriting the nations, that we would right-size him in our worship and that would right-size our fears, Father, which we confess are way too large, way too large. Make us your people like the early church. May we be filled with the Holy Spirit. May boldness abound. May we be people who continually say to others, but look, but look, But look at Zion's holy hill. That rickety old cross holds the king of the world. And that king of the world holds the future of the world. And we trust him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.